Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Rabbi David Gruber. Uh, David, we're glad to have you again uh, for Thank this you. conversation. Uh, and David, uh, in the first episode, our time together, he talked a good bit about his own spiritual journey uh, from uh, conservative to orthodox uh, to uh, more of an independent, uh, progressive uh, Christ, uh, Jewish spirit uh, in, yes. in terms of his rabbinical life and his spiritual life. And uh, we've talked about uh, the interfaith weddings that he specializes in and that we have shared, in fact, uh, together. Uh, but David, I'd really like to talk in this episode about a subject that is uh, deeply important both personally to you uh, but also socially important to all of us, yes. uh, and that is homelessness. Uh, you are the Director of uh, Development and Communications for the Metro yes. Dallas Homeless uh, Alliance. Yes. Uh, and uh, so this is work that you do, and I've been involved with you a bit in that, in, in our community. Uh, but I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what is the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance to begin with? What is Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance? So the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance, our mission is as follows. We lead the development of the homeless response system that will make the experience of homelessness in Dallas and Collin counties rare, brief, and non-recurring. And why is such a body needed? Because we understand when we look at the social science research that if you just have a bunch of organizations working in the same area, be it homelessness or any other social problem, but just kind of each doing their own thing in, in an uncoordinated environment, um, that it's very, very difficult to uh, move the dial on, on solving that spe the specific social problems you're trying to solve. Um, and so there's this uh, fairly new concept of what we call collective impact. It was first discussed in 2010. Um, and collective impact basically means all of the organizations in that same area working together, kind of all rowing in the same direction, not in an uncoordinated environment, but as a system. Um, and one of the principles, there are five principles to collective impact, and one of them is that there be a strong, what's called backbone organization. And so we are the backbone organization for the homeless response system. It is our responsibility to make sure that all of these organizations actually work together to try to, to, try to end homelessness. And um, in fact, every single American community, and when I say community could be an entire state like Delaware, which is small, or it could be Dallas and Collin County, right? Uh, every community has to have such a system and has to have such a, a backbone organization uh, that fulfills uh, uh, this function. So let's talk about this non-duplication idea. I think it's helpful probably for people to understand that while we have numerous organizations in Dallas that are addressing the problem of homelessness, uh, that we try to have as little overlap as possible among these organizations. Yes. So for example, if a, uh, if, if a 
a single mother with two children uh, experiences homelessness as a result of domestic violence or something of that nature, there is a place to go uh, yes. for, for that. And if, if she ends up at some other place, then they will take her to the right place. Right? Yes, exactly. So, exactly. So, so, and, and so there's, there's kind of a processing and coordination sort of, of process. Yes. So typically, how would that work? Would someone go first, say, to the bridge uh, and, and, and then processing from there? Or would it happen in any of these places where uh, you move from one place to the next? So the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> so there, there, there's this concept that we call a coordinated assessment, uh, sometimes called coordinated access or centralized entry. There are niceties between them, but they essentially mean the same thing. And the idea of coordinated access is that, the, is A, there's no wrong doors, right? So wherever you show up in our system, right, you're not going to be told, well, what are you doing here? You're with kids, why are you here at the bridge, right? You're not gonna be told that. The bridge is gonna say, well, guess what? We're gonna take care of you and we're gonna get you over to the right place, which probably is Family Gateway, right? right. If you come to Family Gateway and you happen to be a single male adult, they'll say, they're not gonna say, well, what are you doing here? They're gonna get you to the bridge. Um, so, 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 so part of that idea of coordinated assessment is that there's no wrong doors. Another part of it is that we, we close what are called the back doors and the side doors. So there should be only one entrance into the system. That entrance can be virtual, that entrance can be in lots of different places. But the idea of having that one entrance is that in the bad old days, it's all about first come first serve, which usually means the able-bodied and the people with the least amount of, of problems uh, make it to the head of the line. Um, and so we take that from not a first come first serve, but basically more equitable system where we serve every single person and we prioritize them based on their level of vulnerability and their specific needs. So everybody goes through a uniform evidence-based assessment. Everybody is then prioritized. So if it's like, I don't know, like me on a bad day, I would be all the way on the bottom of the priority list, right? I don't, <laughs> right? Whereas if it's the proverbial, you know, guy, you know, sleeping under the bridge, he'd probably be what we call like a P1 or a P2, meaning, boy, we got to get this guy help as soon as possible. And from there, they go on a unified housing priority list and all of the housing programs, rather than just taking folks from other places, all take them from that one list. So one of the things that impressed me most uh, when I did something with you and uh, MDHA, uh, uh, kind of a, a tour that we took of different facilities. Yes. Every time, uh, every time we went from one place to the next and talked to the people who were there, and watched the way they interact with our homeless neighbors, there was an extraordinary. Uh, personal uh, dignity that they tried to communicate to homeless persons uh, that I found to be so ennobling uh, that just because someone is dirty, someone is homeless, someone is uh, maybe dealing with 
uh, mental illness or uh, addictions or any of those sorts of things, and maybe even a victim of one's own choices, nonetheless, uh, they are treated with an extraordinary humanity, uh, a, a kind of call me by name sort of thing uh, that uh, is, is all across the city in this work. Uh, has that always been so, or has that been a growing change in the social services sector in your mind? That's an excellent question. I, I think it's not a black and white thing, I think it is definitely an issue of, of gradations. Um, I think, and, and part of it is that we, you know, so in terms of treating people with respect and, and, and honor and, 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 you know, treating them as we would want to be treated, I think that probably has always been there. At the same time, um, we have evolved as a field where I'm going to say back in the bad old days, but there are still places that operate this way, unfortunately, that the idea was that if you're homeless, it means there's something wrong with you and that, you know, we need to fix you, right? You, you brought this on upon yourself, right? And we need to fix you, right? And then once we fix you, then you will be worthy of getting back into housing. And um, that never really made sense. There never really was a whole lot of research or any research at all to back that up. However, that fits very much with the American cultural outlook. Sure does. I mean, it totally fits. So, but then, you know, when, when through a lot of trial and error and research, we figured out that, well, really, you know, the modern homelessness crisis is brought upon us by huge societal shifts. And that though obviously choices figure into it, and I've yet to meet a homeless person that does not feel sometimes too much responsibility, you know, for where they ended up. Um, m much more so than, than people who are not homeless, I believe. Um, but but we've kind of figured out as a field that, you know, A, as an issue of, of, of philosophical outlook, housing is a human right, right? We, we, we should not say, well, you know, you are not worthy of housing. Um, and that beyond that, if we do assume that every single person is what we call housing ready, right? Because it used to be they had to fix you and then make you housing ready that every single person by virtue of just being a human being with inherent dignity is housing ready, that just seems to work better in terms of outcomes. And so it's very interesting because you have places that a lot of us, you know, when we hear about homelessness and success and ending homelessness, we invoke Salt Lake City, you know, where they, they drastically lowered homelessness. And, you know, the fact, one of the fascinating things about Salt Lake City is that, is that, there's very conservative people there who bought into this idea that we call housing first, that essentially just house a person, you know, without any preconditions and that in and of itself, you know, once you throw in some services will, will work wonders for them. Um, that those are fair, people that were fairly philosophically conservative and what really convinced them a lot of times just the outcomes 
just, we house these people. And 12 months later, 85% of them are still housed. Okay, let's let's just stop there for a moment sure. because okay. that's Salt Lake City. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's Salt Lake City. Yeah. And yes, yeah. they're conservative. It's largely yes. Mormon yes. influenced. Yes. Uh, but Dallas is not a bastion of liberalism. I mean, we yeah. are uh, even if we are like most urban areas, politically blue generally, we have still an ethos of uh, personal responsibility and of earning your way and of uh, being fiscally prudent and all those sorts of things, right? So that's part of our Dallas uh, culture. Uh, and so when you use language of housing first, let's be clear to people what that means and why it's so, so difficult. It means, as you said, that the solutions to homelessness begin with a home. Uh, not with how to go through a long process of earning the right to be able to live in a safe, secure place, but to begin with a home. Right. But, but here we are, all the, the rest of taxpayers out there having, thinking to themselves, we have done all the right things and had to save and earn and, and, and make our way in order to pay for our apartment or our home. And here you are giving something to someone for nothing just because they, you say, have a right to it or need it. But isn't that irresponsible and isn't it, you know, a lot of that goes on like that. And so right. what happens to us, of course, is we know that just the data say that if you do the housing first approach, the recidivism rate is just ridiculously small. People right. change because they right. have the security and strength and they stay on their meds more and they remain in community with people and they begin to rebuild their lives, starting with that. But where are you going to put these houses? Where are you going to put these apartments, right? And the truth of the matter is we need, I don't know how many we need permanent supportive housing units, but it's... Uh, thousands more than we have, right? And every time someone proposes this, the nimbyism starts, right? The right. not in my backyard and right. property values are going to go down, people fear and put them somewhere, but not near me. So how do we change this mentality, David? Uh, right. What strategies do you all have that would convince people in Dallas that this is worth becoming neighbors to people like this in order to change this problem once and for all. Right. So you've thrown a lot in there. <laughs> uh, yes, I have. <laughs> so let me let me let me try to tackle a, a, a part of it, uh, at least. Um, I think it really depends on who you're talking to, like with everything else, right? Um, and I think that like a lot of things in life, having this conversation today is gonna to be slightly different than having it about two or three months ago. Mm -hmm. Because we have seen a lot of people that played by the rules and made all the right choices. And we see that there are systemic forces 
through which they ended up with the short end of the stick or hardly any piece of the stick. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a little easier, I think, a little easier to make that argument today that somebody ending up homeless is not primarily having to do with their choices. Okay. These are much larger systemic issues. Now, once you realize that, or even if you don't realize that, really what you need to say is, okay, but, but here we are, you know, we have on any given night, about 4,500 folks who are homeless. And there's a binary choice here, right? Cause the, cause what people sometimes think is, well, I don't want to pay for housing and I don't want the housing to be in my backyard. I don't want all of that. You're asking me to choose that. And I don't want that. Okay. Then what you have to realize is that you're making a choice, right? You're trying to say, I don't want to make a choice. You're making a choice. And the choice is continue to perpetuate homelessness, continue to walk under a bridge and have somebody homeless sleeping on the ground, continue to walk through downtown, right? And have folks that are walking around and they're homeless. They have really nowhere to go. Continue. And, to and they will ask you for money. They will ask you and, for money. And, and they will loiter in front of your businesses. And they will loiter in front of your business. And they will uh, relieve themselves in public places. And, because uh, we don't have any bathrooms downtown, right? right. So, so, uh, so you're, you're essentially saying, I'm okay with that. Right. You're also saying, I'm okay with my tax dollars paying for that. And, and people might be, well, what do you mean? I say, here's the deal. And I said this once to Robert Wolanski, and I was happy that he quoted me in the Dallas Morning News. Look, proudest moments. I said, you're spending the money. You either spend it the stupid way or you spend it the smart way. What's a better thing to do? And so it's a binary choice. Now you're right that a huge problem that we run into and to quote, I do this a lot, to quote Mark Clayton, who used to be, is the former District 9 uh, uh, council member. He said this on August- My, my wonderful council member. There you member. go. Yes. August 1st, 2018, at a meeting of the city council, he was one of the last ones to speak. And turning to the, the staff, he said, I want, to ref I want to summarize what my colleagues up till now told you. We all want to help the homeless, except in our neighborhood. Right. And because you have a system in Dallas where informally a, a, a city council member essentially gets to have veto power on what happens in his district, what ends up happening is that nobody helps the homeless in any district. Right. And again, that is a choice. And so what we need to get through to people is that they need to be Now, if you choose you want to perpetuate homelessness, I don't think that's a great idea. Right. But here's what you can't do. You can't complain about homelessness and complain about the waste of money and human potential that goes along with it and say at the same time, but I don't want to solve the problem in my neighborhood. Something's got to give, one of the two. And smart policy would be 
to house them in each and every neighborhood. Now, this is what other cities have done. Other cities like Austin, other cities like Washington, D.C. So Mayor Bowser in Washington, D.C. said, we're all going to hold hands and jump together. Now there, they had a much more severe problem. They had a huge shelter in an old hospital housing 1,500 people every night, and it was untenable. And so she said, we're going to build a shelter in each ward, each district, right? And it means that everybody needs to hang together and say, we're doing this. And, and, and that's really what is needed uh, in the city of Dallas, too. Uh, uh, Former Mayor Rawlings said that there, there's a project called St. Jude, where they took an old hotel, they turned yep. it into permanent supportive housing. It's a beautiful thing. It doesn't, the I don't think the neighborhood even knows it's there, right? Yeah. right? And he said there needs to be one of these in every district. And that's the thing is once you have that, the, the worries and the yelling and the screaming and the lowering of the property rates and the increase of crime doesn't happen. It's all a myth. Right. So, you know, I think going back to the financial aspect of you're going to pay one way or the other, sure. it's not even just an equal amount, is it? I mean, because exactly. the, cost, the cost of housing, of, of permanent supportive housing, is what percentage of the, of the annual cost for a chronically homeless person? Something like half uh, it really depends, and it depends on the type of homelessness that we're talking about. With chronically homeless folks, it's going to cost a lot more. With folks who are just, you know, hit a speed bump and are homeless and need to get into some rapid rehousing program, uh, it's going to be a lot cheaper uh, because it's just temporary subsidies. But, you know, there, there, there's a wonderful uh, essay by Malcolm Gladwell who, who kind of uh, made this idea of permanent supportive housing burst into the consciousness. And it's called, you can look it up online, it's called Million Dollar Murray. And yep. it was this one guy who cost his county and his city a million dollars. Right. We don't have any million dollar Murrays, but I think we've got like $350,000 Murrays, a couple of those. Right. So, I so, mean, it's, what's So people choice? don't realize, what, what money are you talking about? Well, uh, it, it, it costs a great deal to put someone in the county jail. Exactly. Right? and to feed them and to house them in the jail. Yes. And when they have medical problems, they go to the emergency room at Parkland yes. and they don't have insurance. And so we pay uh, through our taxes for yes. uh, Medicaid, which then uh, takes care of all of that. There's police and there's paramedics and there's uh, you know all sorts of services that go into taking care of people uh, who are homeless. Uh, and if you, if you house them, you, all of that begins to change significantly. So you, it's, it's a cost effective way, but it's an emotionally challenging way for most citizens. Uh, what, so, I, what, what, I, what I always want to go back to though is because listen, the, you know, development, development is a fancy way of saying sales. You know, just, I'm not selling widgets. I'm selling, yeah. I'm selling, I'm selling ending homelessness. So I, I will, can, I'll get you into this car, right? Regardless of what your needs are, right? <laughs> it's going to be the car for your family, right? Yeah. 
But, and so if the, cost of, if the cost effective measure is the one that works, great, let's use that argument. I always wanna make sure that we understand, you know, Dallas holds itself up as a, a great city, a world-class city, right? Um, but really, you know, I mean, walking around, you see all these churches, right? You see there's a conservative city. It's a city with a lot of faith in it. Um, and I always want to make sure that we go back to those first principles. So to connect this to our first discussion in the last episode, you know, I, I, I wrote a, a column a few years ago for Dallas Morning News, and, 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 and I talked about, you know, the image of God, right? So when I, you know, once a year, as you know, once a year, we, we have to recruit about 1,500 people to go out one night and count the homeless, literally count them, find people, interview them, because without data, you're, you're flying blind. And what I've said to people is when you go out there, you know, what, what you should be saying to yourself is you're looking for images of God. You right. know, you see this person, you know, like you said, they don't look like you, they don't smell like you, they're not dressed like you, right? They're not clean like you are, but you're, you, you, you might even want to, ver- I, I suggest even verbalizing this thing. There's an image of God over there. Yes. Now let's go interview that person. That, that's an image of God. And I think that's what we need to get back to. Good, you know, good, good. Is, is when you, you know, when you are, when you are, 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 are talking to your kids or in front of your kids, not talking, you're talking in front of your kids about other human beings. You know, what do yep. you want to set for your kids in terms of how they treat other human beings? Good. That's really important to go back to that. In the few minutes we have remaining, David, I want to talk about what COVID-19 has uh, meant to the homeless community. What have been the impacts of, uh, of this on homelessness and the homeless population? Wow. In just a few minutes, huh? I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, the impacts have been huge. And, and I always am keeping my eye on what's happening nationally, not just in Dallas. And I think the impacts are kind of twofold. Um, number one, how did we ever think, going back to what we've discussed up till now, how did we ever think that having people living in congregate living, almost literally on top of each other, essentially warehousing people, was a sustainable idea, was a good <laughs> idea to start. Forget COVID. Why, why do the folks in Highland Park not choose to live that way? Right, right. They're an image of God, too. And so, but COVID, to me, COVID has kind of like sharpened that, right? So one of the first things, and you remember, right? It was like, oh, well, what do we need? Oh, we need to stay home. Kind of difficult when you don't have a home, right? Right. And so what they had to do at Austin Street and at the bridge, just for example, is they had to lose capacity because essentially what they had to do was bridge, right. bridge was sleeping 300 people a night. Okay, well, we need to six feet between people and all this stuff. Forget all the cleaning and everything. Right. Well, the bridge had to had to lose a hundred people a night. 
Austin Street had to lose more. And so immediately capacity is reduced. And so the city, you know, had to figure out what to do, had to scramble and essentially open the uh, convention center and have people sleeping at the convention center. I'm not an economist and I'm not an accountant, but keeping the convention center open one night is essentially like taking dollar bills, tearing them up into little pieces and flushing them down the toilet, right? So, I mean, we're, that, that, that costs a lot of money. Right. Um, there have been specific studies, right? Now this is short term, that we just know already. It's not that we didn't know that, that homeless folks are more medically fragile, but in terms of COVID, oh my God, like they're right. way more fragile in terms of COVID. And so it's been, it's been a huge deal, you know, and, and take into account if you're homeless, you're going around during the, you're going to the library, going here, going there, they can't go anywhere, right? Everything's right. There's been a huge, huge, huge downsides there just in terms of day-to-day living. Right. What I hope, I'm seeing this already, and, 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 and I hope this is true, is that and, and, and my boss, Carl Falconer, talked about this in his State of Homelessness address, is that I think COVID is teaching us some very hard lessons. And I don't think it's teaching us anything we didn't know already, right? It's, te- it's just making things more clear. It's making clear that a home is not just a home. It's not just four walls, but a home, as he put it, is community. It's health, it's safety. Yes. It's making it clearer than ever that having folks in crowded shelters and having folks on the street affects us, right? So beforehand it would have been, well, okay, this costs you money. And you're like, well, how does it cost me money? Okay, let me explain to you how, right? Oh, but I still don't want them in my neighborhood. I hate to be stark about it, but here's my argument, okay. Let's say that it increases crime and lowers your property rates, which is not true. But let's, let's, let's concede that supposedly that myth is true. Do you prefer that your property be less valuable or that you die? Wow. What are you talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, and again, I hate to bring it to that because I think you should do the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. Right. But what you need to understand is that perpetuating homelessness now affects your health and safety. Right. Well, this, is, this has been so illuminating, David. Thank you for all that you do. Thank uh, you. I, I, I like to think that there are probably three things that we can all do in response to this. The yes. first is donate. And yes. so go to Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance uh, page yes. and MDHA hit the donate. MDHADallas.org. Very good. MDHADallas.org. Yes. Very good. Donate. Second, you can volunteer uh, for yes. any of these organizations uh, that are part of this collective, but also yes. uh, the a- annual count, point in yes. time count. Yes. And uh, there are different places across the, the city, including our church that uh, hosts that uh, yes. for, for that purpose. And, and third, advocate, right? Yes. So that is to say, talk with your friends, uh, talk with your council person and uh, be willing to speak on behalf of a transformative policy for homelessness in the city. 
Thank you, David, for all that you do to educate thank us you. and to serve us. And we're grateful for who you are and what you do. And uh, such thank an you for honor, being my George. friend. Such, such an honor. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for being on Good God. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Good God. We're grateful that we get to be able to offer these conversations to you free of charge. And especially now during this time of COVID-19 that is disturbing the peace for all of us, we know that there are a lot of people and organizations that need your funding. And so we're grateful to have the funding necessary to be able to present this to you without asking you to support us at this time. Please give generously to your faith communities and also to those nonprofits that are serving to encourage us during these days. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.